This is RCT number 10, God is Almighty. This is the Roman Catechism of Trent, RCT, page 24 to 27. We are in part one of the RCT, the Creed, article 1, phrase 4. God give you his peace, and nomine patris affidit, spiritus sancti, amen. Heavenly King, Consoler Spirit, Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and filling all things, treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us and save us, you who are all good, amen. In omni patris affidit, spiritus sancti, amen. Just a quick note before we start, you know, I'm a graduate of Boston College and Peter Crave taught me out there, and one of the things that he says, he says this half-jokingly, is that he takes a salary from Boston College, but the ancient Greeks would take no money because they were not dirty enough to sell themselves on their wisdom. Now, one of the reasons I don't have Patreon is because I want everyone to have access to what I would call premium material. In other words, I want the poor to be able to listen to all these podcasts if they have access even to the internet at a library. So that's why I do rely on my donors and don't have Patreon is because Everything that I put on my blog is without pop-ups. Everything I put on the podcast is without Patreon. So you can actually see a link. I'm going to link the Creed of St. Athanasius. You'll know why a little bit later in the show notes. And at the top of that blog, you can also see how to find how to donate to me. Uh, You don't have to donate to listen. That's the whole point of this little uh, beginning. But if you do, it's always super helpful. Okay, so today we are in God is Almighty. We just finished a section on the Trinity. But that launches us into the infinite power of God. Three persons perfect, almighty. The Catechism says, The sacred scriptures, in order to mark the piety and devotion with which the most holy name of God is to be adored, usually express his supreme power and infinite majesty in a variety of ways. But the pastor should, first of all, teach that almighty power is most frequently attributed to him. Thus he says of himself, I am the Almighty Lord, Genesis 17.1. And again, Jacob, when sending his sons to Joseph, thus prayed for them, May my Almighty God make him favorable to you, in Genesis 43.14. In the Apocalypse also it is written, The Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's Apocalypse 1.8. And in another place, the last day is called the great day of the Almighty, Apocalypse 16.14. Sometimes the same attribute is expressed in many words, thus, No word shall be impossible with God, Luke 1.37. Is the hand of the Lord unable, Numbers 11.23. Thy power is at hand when thou wilt, Wisdom 12.18, and so on. Okay, me here. So are you noticing how many scripture quotes are in the Roman Catechism of Trent, RCT? I'm actually starting to think it's a modern myth that the post-Trent Catholic world, the post-Tridentine Catholic world, had prohibited scripture. How often do you hear the modern hierarchy or even the modern Vatican quote scripture? I hear almost never unless it's proof texting or eisegesis out of context. So as you hear this RCT, Notice how much Catholics in the past actually knew and loved the sacred scriptures. Why is that? Because there's only one faith and one baptism, and it's found in traditional Catholicism, which I always call apostolic Catholicism. And of this, I'm more and more convinced this is the only faith. And the Catechism again, meaning of the term Almighty. From these various modes of expression, it is clearly perceived what is comprehended under this single word, Almighty. But if we understand that there neither exists nor can be conceived in thought or imagination 
anything which God cannot do. For not only can he annihilate all created things and in a moment summon from nothing into existence many other worlds, an exercise of power which, however great, comes in some degree within our comprehension, but he can do many things still greater, of which the human mind can form no conception. But though God can do all things, yet he cannot lie or deceive or be deceived. He cannot sin or cease to exist or be ignorant of anything. These defects are compatible with those beings only whose actions are imperfect. But God, whose acts are always most perfect, is said to be incapable of such things simply because the capability of doing them implies weakness, not the supreme and infinite power over all things which God possesses. Thus we so believe God to be omnipotent that we exclude from him entirely all that is not intimately connected and consistent with the perfection of his nature. Okay, that's such beautiful and powerful words that God can just create new worlds in just the blink of an eye, but he can do even greater things which we can actually form no conception of, but he cannot lie. Also, did you hear that? It said God cannot deceive or be deceived. Those are very famous infallible words from the Council of Trent and from Vatican I. But now let me read you from Bishop Barron's new book on St. Thomas Aquinas. And notice as I read this, this paragraph, this is error, not truth. He writes, Here I am reminded of Hans Urs von Balthasar's discussion of the overwhelming salvific power of God. God's outreach of love is so intense, his compassion so tireless and efficacious, says Balthazar, that he will eventually wear down even the most stubborn of sinners. Eventually, we can hope God's wily and indefatigable love will trick even the cleverest sinner out of his self-imposed prison of illusion. To be sure, we must believe that, given the fact of freedom, a human being could, in a final sense, say no to God, but we must at the same time reasonably hope that all people will eventually be outwitted by the benign trickery of divine love. So what you just heard there is not the truth. That is error. Despite all the little caveats, that is the polar inverse of Calvinism. Why do I say that? So Calvinism holds to double predestination with no free will. Bishop Barron there holds everyone to being saved. Does he allow for free will on man's part? Not really. He describes God's love as wily and even describes it as trickery. So even though that's not dark like Calvinists and Muslims in their capricious view of God and his anger, it's exactly the same trashing of free will. It's exactly the same capricious view that Calvinists and Muslims have towards God, but Bishop Barron takes it to the other extreme of free will that everyone is saved. And that, again, that's error you just heard. Because, no, we cannot believe in a benign trickery of divine love when God has made free will. See, today's section in the RCT is about God's omnipotence. And God's omnipotence has allowed for free will on man's part. In fact, God's omnipotence has positively willed free will on the part of every angel and every human. And that's precisely why Jesus in the Bible and Mary at Fatima and every saint I've ever read who wrote before 1950 with visions of the afterlife says there's a lot of people going to hell every day. The Catechism again on why omnipotence alone is mentioned in the Creed. 
the pastor should point out the propriety and wisdom of having omitted all other names of God in the creed and of having proposed to us only that of Almighty as the object of our belief. For by acknowledging God to be omnipotent, we also of necessity acknowledge him to be omniscient and to hold all things in subjection to his supreme authority and dominion. When we do not doubt that he is omnipotent, we must be also convinced of everything else regarding him, the absence of which would render his omnipotence altogether unintelligible. Besides, nothing tends more to confirm our faith and animate our hope than a deep conviction that all things are possible to God. For whatever may be afterwards proposed as an object of faith, however great, however wonderful, however raised above the natural order, is easily and without hesitation believed once the mind has grasped the knowledge of the omnipotence of God. Nay more, the greater the truths which the divine oracles announce, the more willingly does the mind deem them worthy of belief. And should we expect any favor from heaven, we are not discouraged by the greatness of the desired benefit, but are cheered and confirmed by frequently considering that there is nothing which an omnipotent God cannot effect. Me again. Now, the most common objection that the atheist gives to the Christian on his belief in God, we call this the problem of pain. And the atheist's objection to Catholics, really any believer, goes like this. If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then why doesn't he stop the suffering of the innocent people on earth, especially children? Now, it's actually a great, it's a great question. It's not a total cop-out. And most modern Catholics, usually to their credit, attempt to answer it by speaking of God's infinite love. And that's a great thing to do. But if we don't also speak of God's infinite power, that is, his omnipotence, then the problem is we leave weak atheists thinking that God is sweet, but really that just leads listeners to despair just as much as really the thought of an unloving God. The thought of a non-powerful God is just as disheartening as a not-loving God. Why is that? Well, it's because we see so much evil around us. And most people think of God as equal to their emotions. So when they evaluate their own nice emotions, and then they see something like child trafficking, then they think that God doesn't exist. So what is the way out of this? It's the Catholic faith that understands God is infinitely powerful, but he turns suffering to good. And we can only understand this by the vision of the general judgment in heaven and hell. St. Augustine said, God judged it better to bring good from evil rather than to suffer no evil to exist. Let me read that again from St. Augustine. God judged it better to bring good from evil rather than to suffer no evil to exist. So notice that speaks of God's power on the cross that he only allows evil to bring a greater good out of it but that that infinite power of God will probably only be seen fully by us. He already sees it. He affects it. But will only be seen fully by us when we see the glory of those who go to heaven and the pain of those who go to hell, partly because that latter group has caused so much suffering on earth. The latter has not escaped God's infinite power. But if we let people think God equals their nice emotions and everyone is saved, then the unrepentant who, again, say, traffic children, then for the smart atheist looking at this, 
God is really nothing but how C.S. Lewis once joked how many modern Christians see him, which is a throbbing vat of tapioca pudding in outer space. (laughs) But when we understand God isn't just nice, but God is omnipotent, it's just as we heard in the Catechism. When we do not doubt that he is omnipotent, we must be also convinced of everything else regarding him, the absence of which would render his omnipotence altogether unintelligible. Besides, the Catechism says, nothing tends more to confirm our faith and animate our hope than a deep conviction that all things are possible to God. So you see, you really can't believe God can bring good out of evil, especially all the evil we see in the world. You couldn't really believe God can bring good out of evil unless you already believe God can do all things, that he truly is infinitely powerful. We also have to understand Jesus is God, and he could have stopped his own crucifixion that happened to him as a man, but he turned that greatest evil of all of human history into the greatest good, not only because he's infinitely loving, but also because he's infinitely powerful. In fact, St. Paul had to learn this lesson even after his conversion, when he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And back to the Roman Catechism of Trent, RCT, it speaks of advantages of faith in God's omnipotence. With this faith, then, we should be specially fortified whenever we are required to render any extraordinary service to our neighbor or seek to obtain by prayer any favor from God. It's necessity in the one case we learn from the Lord himself, who, when rebuking the incredulity of the apostles, said, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove from hence thither, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Matthew seventeen nineteen. And in the other case, from these words of St. James, Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, which is moved and carried about by the wind. Therefore let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. James 1, 6-7 The faith brings with it also many advantages and helps. It forms us in the first place to all humility and lowliness of mind, according to these words of the Prince of the Apostles, Be you humble therefore under the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5, 6 It also teaches us not to fear where there is no cause of fear, but to fear God alone, in whose power we ourselves and all that we have are placed. For our Savior says, I will show you whom you shall fear. Fear ye him who after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Luke 12, 5. This faith is also useful to enable us to know and exalt the infinite mercies of God towards us. For he who reflects on the omnipotence of God cannot be so ungrateful as not frequently to exclaim, He that is mighty hath done great things to me. Luke 1, 49. Me again. So there you have again that you actually have to believe in God's omnipotence before you believe in his infinite love. 
I mean, really, if God's going to love a wretch like me, then he really has to be omnipotent. I say that half-jokingly, but really it's no joke when I consider how many sins I have committed against God. Again, if God is going to love a wretch like me, he really has to be omnipotent first, or I should say simultaneously since God is in eternity. But let's also notice that God respects our free will, and our relationship with God is therefore conditional. You know, it's kind of funny, kind of sad. I put on Facebook recently that God's love to us is conditional, and then people freaked out in the comments. They thought I was saying God's love was not infinite. Okay, people, let me set this straight. Of course, I believe God's love for us is infinite. But the problem is this. All these people think, they think of their emotions as equal to God. And instead of God being God, they didn't even stop to think what that word conditional means. So with all the emotions aside, let's just realize that infinite does not equal unconditional. In the English language, these are two very, very, very different words. My relationship to God is conditional because every covenant in the Bible starts with an if-then statement. Now look, saying that doesn't mean God's love is one drop less than infinite for any of us. Of course I believe that. But saying that our relationship with God is conditional, that just means that not only do we have an infinitely loving and powerful God, but also an infinitely personal God who actually respects our free will and expects us to, to fulfill in responsibility what he tells us to do. You see, I'm sorry to say this, but you're not going to find a single saint before 1950 who says God loves you unconditionally. That's not because the saints before 1950 didn't discover something new about God's love. It's just they knew what the word unconditionally meant. Again, I'm not saying the old school saints doubted God's infinite love for each one of us. These are the saints who stared at the crucifix for hours a day weeping at God's love. I'm just saying they were careful on wording and look Please, dear ones, know that the word unconditional is a very silly term when you realize it means man can do whatever he wants without consequences from God. I mean, what kind of loving father would ever operate a universe like this, much less a kitchen like that? You see, if you believe God's love is wily and full of trickery, like we heard from Bishop Barron earlier, then I guess you could believe God's love is unconditional. That is, there's no conditions on man's part. But every covenant I've ever seen in the Bible has conditional, that is, if-then statements. Just listen to four short examples. Deuteronomy 28.13 The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you only will be above and you will not be underneath if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. 1 Kings 3.14 says, If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. 1 Kings 6.12 If you walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you which you spoke to David your father. And we even see this in the New Testament. Jesus, in the most intimate chapter of love, John 15, we hear in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So again, I'm sorry, but you're never going to read any saint before 1950 saying God's love is unconditional. Those saints, they're not, let me say again, they're not saying God's love is anything less than infinite. They're just saying that my relationship with God is conditional, and that means I can mess this up. I can sin and go to hell. That's the condition. It's an if-then statement. That's what conditional versus unconditional means. But again, if everyone goes to heaven and no free will exists then God's love is unconditional, 
that means there's no conditions. And he is, just like C.S. Lewis mocked, just this throbbing vat of tapioca pudding in heaven that nobody can take seriously, especially when serious suffering hits on this planet. But, and here's the good news behind this, if Jesus is true God and true man like we know, then dying on the cross for you and me, paying that price to save me from hell, that would certainly be my punishment without his passion, by the way, without his passion and resurrection. Then we know God is infinitely loving and infinitely powerful. But my relationship with him, at least on this earth, is certainly conditional. Why? Because he doesn't force his love on anyone. Every covenant begins with an if-then statement. So no, there's no way we can say God's love is unconditional, at least not our relationship with him, because we have the condition to fulfill if we want to make it to heaven. But hey, none of your friends are going to understand that because everyone erroneously equates infinite love with unconditional love, so I wouldn't try to explain this to people who aren't listening to this podcast unless you send them the whole podcast, explaining this difference with all those above biblical examples like if and then. Short of that, I wouldn't tell people God's love is not unconditional because all they're going to hear is you saying that God's love is a couple drops less than infinite for them, which is not what I'm saying, and I hope it's not what you would say. Okay, back to the last section of the Roman Catechism today, which declares there are not three almighties, but one almighty. When, however, in this article, we call the Father Almighty, let no one be led into the error of thinking that this attribute is so ascribed to him as not to belong also to the Son and the Holy Ghost. As we say, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God, and yet, there are not three gods, but one God. So, in like manner, we confess that the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, and the Holy Ghost Almighty. And yet, there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. The Father, in particular, we call Almighty because He is the source of all being, as we also attribute wisdom to the Son because He is the eternal Word of the Father, and goodness to the Holy Ghost because He is the love of both. These, however, and similar appellations may be given indiscriminately to the three persons according to the teaching of the Catholic faith. Okay, me again. Just a few more sentences from me. just have to say my favorite explanation of the equal immensity of every person of the Trinity is found in the Athanasian Creed, written by St. Athanasius. It's too long to read to you today on this podcast because we've gone long enough, but I am going to link it in the show notes that I put on my blog a few years ago. Please do read it today, and please say an Our Father for me at Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris et Fidi, at Spiritus Santi, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.